Welcome to episode 13 of the creativecoast.org podcast. This is a different type of episode this time because we're interviewing three separate people all in a row who are doing similar things. They're all educators who were teaching in person, but have had to adapt to distance learning methods due to the social distancing requirements of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Pi, and we have some wonderful guests today. We're going to talk to Josh Rogers, who teaches pre-K in North Carolina, Brian Cornow, an eighth grade history teacher in Oakland, California, and Josh Workman, who teaches music at the college level at the Musicians Institute in Los Angeles. So let's go ahead and get started with our interview with Josh Rogers. Josh Rogers, welcome to creativecoast.org. Hi, thanks for having me. It's wonderful to speak with you, Josh. So you are a pre-kindergarten teacher in North Carolina. To just kind of begin briefly, can you tell me like what a regular like non-quarantine day is like as a pre-K teacher? Like what do you usually do? Sure. Um, I actually work at a Reggio-based school here in North Carolina, and it's much more play-based type of center. So we spend a lot of our day really working and focusing on community and building relationships with children and families. So we don't focus as heavily on academics as some other preschools might. Uh, We're really more based on the social and emotional growth of the children. So when they come into school, we have lots of centers open. Uh, We're dropping off, uh, having lots of interpersonal connections with families at that time. Then we spend a good portion of our day outside, a good hour to an hour and a half generally outside on our playgrounds. Then we come back inside, we'll have a circle, we'll have snack, we'll have circle, we'll have open centers again, usually with a couple of provocations or specified learning activities that are set up that the children can go to. And then they just kind of have some free play time around the classroom after that, kind of with us there guiding and learning. But our day actually only goes until 1230. So we're a structured kind of day at that point. Um, and then after 1230, we just have aftercare. Oh, okay, sweet. Yeah, that sounds perfect. I want to go. I want to go to pre-K. <laughs> uh, we are, we're project-based learning. So we kind of look at what things the children are interested in. And we kind of focus all of our plans and activities around that. So what we have offered as far as activities and centers and things like that, uh, it's all based upon whatever the children are interested in learning at that point. Uh, When I last left, we were talking about rainbows and light and reflection and refraction and stuff like that. So really project-based education also. Yeah, I really focused on the the students' interests. Yeah. So I have a question that I've really been asking all the educators who are on this episode. When did you find out basically that your school was going to shift to online learning like this? Because for in some cases, you know, it was just kind of like thrown at instructors and say like, okay, you have two weeks to put your class online or we're closing, everything's online now. When were you told that there was going to be this change in in your school? And did you have time to get ready? (laughs) Uh, Sort of. They took the very first week that this happened as our spring break week. And so we had one week kind of off. They moved our spring break forward, pushed it up so that we had spring break first. And then the very next week, we started doing some online things. My class, we decided to start a Facebook group. And we've been posting some stuff on their live, but then also doing some YouTube things. 
Also, that very first week, we were just doing emails out to the class community with ideas and provocations and things like that that children, that parents can do with their children at home. So we had sort of a week of buffer in between there. Okay, that sounds great. And very um, connected with the parents too, definitely. Yes. Unfortunately, because our children are so young, it's mainly filtering everything kind of through the parents. Well, Josh, you started to answer this a little bit, and we were curious about how did you go about designing their online lessons, and how are they different? So it's kind of a work in progress, I would say, because so much of what we do is about building community and about building social and emotional growth, and a little bit less about the academic side of things. We threw out a couple of ideas via email about you know, things to do to continue. We were also doing a story building unit at this point. So things that they can do at home to help continue to foster that love of storytelling and the love of writing and drawing and things like that to, to enhance stories and puppet making and things like that. So we did a little bit of email communication about that. And then we also have just been uploading some videos to YouTube, like I said, and doing some FaceTime readings of stories on Facebook live streams, I guess. What type of end devices are you targeting for laptops or tablets or something else? Or is it generic? Kind of generic, I think. We're all just sort of flying by the seat of our pants at this point, I think. Looking at what types of technology, I mean, there's just emails going back and forth. Is Zoom better? Is FaceTime better? Is How can we connect with each other? Because that's really what I think our children and our families are craving are just connection at this point. Unfortunately, a lot of what people see early childhood education as it's just daycare. So that puts us into a really difficult realm overall, really trying to find ways of connecting community because that's the primary goal of what we're doing. So it doesn't matter what device you're using or what platform, it's just finding ways of bringing people together. So Zoom, Facebook, Facebook Live, YouTube videos, emails, just back and forth, all of these sorts of things. I don't think it really matters or depends on a device. It just matters getting in front of people and families and making sure that those connections stay together. One question that comes up from what you described earlier was if in your curriculum, the objective is more social interaction learning than academic learning, and now you're online remote distance learning, how are you able to maintain the social interaction between each student, the students between each other with this new medium that you're forced into? Yeah, I think that's exactly the question that we're being faced with right now. So beginning next week, we're going to be doing some Zoom circle times where everybody will have a chance to get together, share their ideas, share. We're even talking about doing some show and tells, just like we would do in our classroom. Everyone will have a chance to do show and tell. And everyone in this case, meaning the students in your class, the pre-K students. Correct. So we're going to be doing a Zoom circle time starting hopefully next week. We've been doing, uh, thankfully, our Facebook group has been fairly active and parents have been showing photos of their kids. One of them lost a tooth this past week. And so there was a big proud moment there. Uh, Another one got her training wheels off of her bike. And so they posted a video of that. So it's nice that the families have been able to come together on that platform to at least share a little bit about what's going on in their daily lives and for kids to see what the other kids are doing. Uh, I, I love the idea of show and tell. And just like bringing that in, because I think show and tell from your home, you probably have so many more opportunities of things to show. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually really excited to see that because, I mean, it, for, for example, pets, you know, you, we can't necessarily always bring our pets into school, but uh, you might be able to hear my dog barking kind of outside in the background. Should be a wonderful opportunity that 
you know, kids wouldn't usually be able to to bring into the classroom to share. So right. it does it kind of expands the learning opportunities for us. And kids are usually proud of their pets too. Oh yeah. And even um what you were talking about, the kid who got her uh training wheels off of her bike. She could even show like riding her bike maybe as her show and tell. It sounds so cool. <laughs> what are some of your concerns with distance learning that you've observed with pre-K kids? I think it's just very difficult to continue to hold on to those relationships and to continue fostering that sense of community that we have in the classroom, independent from parents, independent from their home environment, that when we build these social connections, we're really doing it in a carefully crafted space, carefully created space. So it's very difficult to to emulate that at home. So much of what we do is working through problems and relationships and, and social interactions. And we also think of our classroom as kind of the third teacher because of how we set things up and the way that we present materials and things like that. So it's just, it's very difficult to emulate that at home. A sort of related question would be sort of the flip side of that. Have you observed any advantages to distance learning and working with pre-K children? I think what Ginger just mentioned, that you get a lot more sense of what's actually happening at the child's home. You get a lot more sense of them being able to share their real act actual lives with you as opposed to just who they are in the classroom. You get to see a whole picture of the child a little bit more, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So far, how have you, have you observed any, or do you have any observations about how students are, are handling this change? I mean, for better or worse, and maybe not just, you know, in terms of your own program, but just overall how students are dealing with this. From what I can tell, they're really enjoying having time with their families, which is really, really nice because these families are just kind of being forced to spend time with their parents and their children. And it's just, it's actually really remarkable. And hopefully people are going to come out of this with some really wonderful, fond memories. I'm very thankful to have a... Do you have more parental participation in the online sessions? Oh, a lot more parental. It's almost all, it has to be fueled by parents. I mean, it all kind of gets filtered in through the parents. You know, they're the ones receiving the emails. They're the ones that have to set up the, the Facebook video for the children to see. They're the ones that have to decide, okay, now it's time for you to sit down and listen to this YouTube video because I just need five minutes to go do something else. And you're going to watch this YouTube video of your teacher reading a book to you. So, <laughs> so much of it is the parent having, yeah, it's all being filtered through the parents. So I have a question then um, that kind of attached to that. And this is, this is more of a general question. So not just for, for your, for parents of your students, but for parents in general, do you have any recommendations for just parents of young students across the board and how they can handle, how they can deal with this time, basically? Yes, I would say remember to take deep breaths, both as a parent and as a kid, taking time out of your day to just inhale and exhale and release, because I think we all get so caught up in the stress of things. We do it during the classroom. And it's something that I, one of the very first videos I posted on YouTube was just different ways of taking big, good, deep breaths. Um, Because it's just so vital, especially for young children to just have a moment to go, okay, this isn't all melting down right now. I have this. It's going to be fine. Also, just really focus on making memories. This is a great time to be at home with your kids and be able to spend time and create something magical. And then the, the last absolute that should have been my first is get outside whenever you can spend some time in nature. I know social distancing is a thing and it's important, 
but there are so many trails and places that you can be by yourself, even if it's just your backyard. Being outside is so critical for our mental and physical well-being, I think, at this point. So find as many opportunities for that as you can. Those are van- those are fantastic um, recommendations. I especially love like your approach of like using this time to make memories with your kids because this is probably what they're going to remember. Oh yeah, I remember when I was at home with my parents for days on end. <laughs> and um, if those are positive memories, that's fantastic. That's you know a great great way to approach something that's otherwise kind of negative and very scary. Children shouldn't really be facing the negative sides of this. For them, all that they're going to remember is that this was the few weeks I had home that I played with mom and dad for a few weeks. That's really all it's going to come down to for them and when the history books are written in their eyes. I like that. The history books in their eyes. That's perfect. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't really touched on? I would like to just say that I really appreciate you inviting me on as an early childhood educator. Most of us are not part of the public school education system. We often rely on private schools and private tuitions to continue to be compensated and funded. So I think right now is a really uh, scary time for a lot of early childhood educators because, like I was saying earlier, a lot of us are considered almost like childcare or babysitting. And when parents aren't getting that babysitting or childcare component of our education, then they don't necessarily feel like they need to be paying tuition for that. And then that really directly affects our compensation. So just if you know other early childhood educators out there right now, please reach out to them because we're all kind of in this little gray area of, are we going to get paychecks or not? Um, And that's not just me. That's a number of other people that I've spoken to across the board in early childhood right now. There are some early childhood care centers that are remaining open that are here for essential employees. Uh, and they have to take really strict licensing and, and health guidelines in order to remain open. But it's a it's a scary time for early childhood educators. I think even more so than some public school teachers who are good at who are kind of guaranteed compensation and continuing paychecks because they can do this virtual thing. The virtual classroom is have a question mark. I think still for early childhood. Yeah, I definitely see that. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share. A question that we've asked everybody all the interviewees in this series, is that whenever it's safe once again, whenever that is, to associate normally in person, will distance learning remain as greater a proportion of your toolbox than it was before the COVID-19 pandemic? No, I don't think so. I think that primarily we will be going back to more traditional social interactions and and physical contact because that is 90% of what we do. So we might continue sending emails and maybe a Facebook group will be something new that we engage with. But I think the majority of our work is done in person. So Sounds like that's in, in particular for your for your ed, for the level of students who you're you're educating. Yes. That uh, in person in person part, the project based learning. There's just no replacement for the in person interaction in this case. Exactly. Well, Josh, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us from North Carolina. Again, we're really grateful for your input. So thank you for being on um, creativecoast.org. Thank you so much for having me on. Hello, Brian Cornell. Thank you for being on creativecoast.org. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Brian. Brian, you are an eighth grade 
history teacher for um, the Alameda Unified School District in California. And I just wanted to kind of get some of, uh, I guess, some of your feelings, um, kind of a sense of what's going on in Alameda, because it's probably very similar to what, uh, what's going on with middle school teachers and students throughout the country right now. Could you tell me a little bit about your experiences over the past couple of weeks? Like, how did you find out about instructional changes that were going on? Did people sense that there was going to be a change coming? So it's been a very interesting last couple of weeks. Basically, we just get e- we've gotten emails about every two, three hours with stuff that would change when the schools initially closed because there was no plan. The, our, basically, our schools didn't know what was going on. They didn't know if we were going to be closed or, or for how long. I know our superintendent has been in communication with all the other superintendents in Alameda County, and they made the collective choice of what to of what to do. Thankfully, our school in particular is already fairly tech savvy, so it hasn't really been a huge change for us. But at the same time, just all the misinformation has kind of led to an uncertainty where we really don't know what's going on. Uh, so still at this at this point, I guess. I know in California, we've been under this shelter in place situation for about two weeks now. Has it been two weeks, two months? (laughs) Yeah, I I think two weeks today, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So even over that time, there's still a sense of, you know, an unsettled sense of what's going on. Yeah, so our school, which I'm sure most others, because my wife's also a teacher, and um, they have no plan for this. So it's all been kind of made up on the fly. And so it's, I find it very interesting because all of a sudden it's like, all of a sudden you say, hey, schools are closed. And then all of a sudden it's the teachers who are uh, figure out a plan. And they came up with a plan within 24 hours of how to deal with this. And it was the teachers who did this, not the state officials, not anyone from the the federal government. It's local individual teachers who came up with their plan. And we just got our plan for how to roll out for the month of April since we're now closed. And we got that, oh, geez, three days ago. Okay. So you received your plan three days ago. Uh, have you? Yes, for how, to, for how we're supposed to do online learning opportunities. I need to be very clear on what kind of language to use. Why? Like what, what's so important about opportunities? Well, the most important thing, we have to call them online learning opportunities and not curriculum or not assignments or tasks or anything else, simply because we want to make sure that education is equitable for all students. And and there are so many students who either lack a computer, lack a parent, lack internet, we have to call them learning opportunities. And so therefore, it makes it so every student can have the opportunity to learn, but doesn't make them feel like they have to learn. That's really interesting, because I've been thinking about that and you know, my husband, who also works for a school system here in California, and, you know, I have experience teaching as well, is just thinking about the um, economic imbalance uh, among students, you know, and some students, you know, they've got computers at home, they've got, you know, um, high speed internet, others, they maybe they have a cell phone that they can use, maybe they have nothing. So I, I think they, that use of the word opportunities, that's really interesting little so it is interesting. So I don't want to brag, but our school is very ahead of was a very ahead of the curve. We have a number of Chromebooks, and about a month ago, we did a technology survey 
just asking what technology students have at their house, just so we as a site can know. That was timely. Yeah, I know, right? And I came back, like something like 90% of our students said they have access to internet and a computer at home. Oh, wow. But the problem that we didn't account for is that, well, if there's a family of five and they have two computers at home, mom and dad need to do their work. And then brother and sister also have to do their schoolwork. So you can't have five people on two devices at once. Yeah. So it, it doesn't make sense. So that's why there's been a huge change of the way we have to, to teach. And we did issue Chromebooks to all students who didn't have Chromebooks. We had the school open and anyone can come into our school and check out a Chromebook until schools reopen. Okay. Okay. So for students who have nothing at home, yes. they do have the opportunity to come in and check out a, a laptop. Yeah. So basically to have the internet or to have internet access. And I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe Xfinity Internet was offering free internet for the next two months, free Wi-Fi. But I'm not positive on that. That's something one would wonder about because you, they can take the Chromebooks home, but if they don't have internet service to connect them online, they still have very limited capabilities. And that's exactly correct. Yeah. Oh, I was hearing about, um, I don't know, this is happening in Oakland about these um, school buses driving around with Wi-Fi hotspots and, and stuff. I, don't, I, <laughs> I haven't heard anything about that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I've been reading so much stuff. I, I was actually reading an article the other day about the challenge of families who are trying to allow their children to do their online schoolwork, but then also the parents are working online the Wi-Fi is overburdened. And so you were talking about your uh, your school being kind of, kind of a little ahead of the curve with, with some preparation for, for teaching online. Are you guys using any particular software, like a learning management system like Blackboard or Canvas? or? So uh, I don't know what's used for, um, for K through 12, actually, because my experience is in higher ed. Yeah. Google unveiled the classroom and made it fairly accessible to most school districts from what I know a couple years ago. Mm. And so we use Google Classroom and it's very simple, very intuitive and very pretty and colorful. So for those who don't have experience with Google Classroom, could you summarize some of its capabilities? Oh sure. It's just it's basically an um, interface platform that allows you to post assignments, discussion topics. It allows basically teacher and student interaction. There's a grade book on there as well. You can do online quizzes, post videos. It's just a very simple way of doing a lot of teaching education. Yeah. That's fascinating. I've never heard, I haven't heard about that before. Is it, is it something that's like open to, to anyone? Is it open to homeschoolers? Is it? I believe anyone can get onto Google Classroom. I'm not sure what it looks like from the professional side to the personal side of Google. I've joined all of my classrooms with my personal email address just so I can test everything to make sure it works. Of course. I've never set up a classroom for my personal email address. Okay. Okay. So I'm not sure. Yeah. I might, I might explore that just to see, you know, what's, what's out there. Did you feel pretty confident with using Google Classrooms? Well, I've switched over to using it as a source of communication about three years ago. Oh, wow. So all my students already know, okay, go on Google Classroom, see what the assignment is. Or, oh, there's, and all my quizzes are always posted on Google Classroom. So for all my students, 
it was just kind of like, okay, well, now I don't get to go see Mr. Cornell talk in the front of class. Now I just have to go online. Yeah. Are you recording any lectures or anything like that? Honestly, no. Okay. As I said, my wife's also a teacher and we've read quite a bit about this. And we've there's a lot of trauma associated with these instances where schools just canceled. And students' brains, in our opinion, probably aren't capable of taking in new information. So it's more like, as I said, learning opportunities. Let's pr- provide them with things that are interesting, things that make them inquisitive, things they want to learn more about on their own. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that, that actually makes a lot of sense because, again, I've just maybe like one of my ways of managing this craziness is just constantly reading the Washington Post yeah. and <laughs> like almost obsessively. And there was an article there about, you know, we need to just suggesting like, let's just focus on kind of sustaining the learning that students have already done rather than introducing new new content. Yeah. So, I mean, basically the way I'm teaching from this point on is every week, we're just going to do a new chapter in the book. Thankfully, we also have an online version of our textbook. Okay. And then every week is basically just going to read this, answer some discussion questions, create an online discussion board, make them talk about that, post a bunch of YouTube videos about that thing, yeah. and then give them an open note, open book, open anything, 10-point quiz at the end yeah. of the week. Yeah. Make it engaging in a way. Yeah. From your sense of it, are they learning with this method? Are you seeing results? The problem is the students who want to learn will but the students who don't innately want to learn, they're not even involved. That sounds the same as the classroom. <laughs> it is, but at least in the cl- classroom, I can be there to like pat them on the shoulder, make a little smart out, like a comment to their face, yeah. get them back, back engaged. You're losing a lot of the nonverbal channels of communication this way. Okay. Exactly. And we have about a 65 to 70% rate of students who are online. Okay. There's about... 30, 35% of students who haven't even been online once yet. Most people in the public would assume that the students in the age range that you're teaching would be considered what you would call digital natives. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Is that a help in your distance learning setup? Yes and no. While they know how to use everything on the internet, they're also so used to quick responses and quick answers. And if they don't have that instant gratification, they tend to give up. So if they can't log in, They'll send me an, an email asking for their password to be reset. And I'll do, do that, but it may take an hour or two. And then I may not hear from them for two or three days. Right. And for someone on their response cycle culture, that is traumatic almost. <laughs> exactly. Like they just, they need that instant gratification. Yeah. Or it just like fades away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So it sounds like there's a variety, like one other question that we had was, how are students dealing with this change? At least as far as you could tell, it sounds like there's like a wide variety of ways that students are at least presenting their way of dealing with it. I, I guess like staying engaged or floating away. Yeah, it is interesting because the students who were engaged in the classroom and were high achieving in the classroom are still high achieving online. The students who kind of don't care in the classroom, well, they don't care online either. Right. And then, interestingly enough, I have a few students who have been very lackluster in the classroom this year, but all of a sudden, when we switch to an online learning, they're achieving amazingly. They're doing everything beyond, beyond, beyond expectations. Their work is complete. Their work is good. But yet, when it was in the classroom, they wouldn't even put their name on it, their work. That's really interesting. And, and that's, that is. that's cool, yeah. in a way. It's just, I guess, having the 
like uh, Mark was saying, this, maybe this digital native aspect makes them feel more comfortable online than in the classroom, or for some reason, they just feel more confident. I, I don't know. I mean, the problem is, I mean, we all were 13-year-olds at one point, and it's the most awkward age in the world where all you care about is your social standing and your perception to your little social bubble. Right. And if you take that away, then all of a sudden, you don't have to risk being uncool to write something instead of having to raise your hand. So yeah. opportunities for criticism from other students is limited with this. Exactly. Yeah, for useless criticism, like what are you wearing? Yeah, or t- totally. How, yeah. how new is your iPhone? The whole, the whole, yeah, right. the whole spectrum of it. Uh, that's pretty neat. I also wonder, have there been any creative opportunities for you in this situation? Um, like, do you feel like you're doing do you see yourself carrying some of this into the future? Like when things get back to normal and we have face-to-face instruction again, or is this just primarily a challenge to, to get through? Like basically, are there, are there any, do you see any, anything that you might take from it? Any, anything? Personally, I think this is the greatest thing for education ever. Okay. <laughs> the one thing that teachers always complain about is time. When I'm at school, I'm either in front of a student, I'm being pulled into a nonsense meeting. I'm filling out a paper about something. I'm not actually doing any teaching. And now it's like, I don't, all of that's all the bureaucratic tasks are gone. So all I have to do is think of how can I make an awesome lesson and how do I engage in a 13 year old brain? And that's it. Okay. And so it's amazing. That's got to be more fulfilling for an educator. Oh my goodness. I mean, yes, I was... Shoot, I read an article that compared U.S. teachers to teachers in Finland, Japan, and Singapore. And they said that the U.S. teacher teaches face-to-face in front of students more than any other country in the world. While in Finland, they work an average of a seven-hour and 45-minute day. They're only in front of a student for three hours and 15 minutes on average. In the U.S., we work a nine-hour and 15-hour, nine-hour and 15-minute day on, on average. And we're in front of a student, I think they said like five hours and 45 minutes. And compare that with Japan, where they work on average an 11-hour school day, but they're only in front of a student for two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. So in other countries, the majority of their of a teacher's job is not actually being in front of the student. It's working with other teachers, collaborating, working to make it a basically a better education system. Almost like how we treat college professors. You mean because of the limited amount of face-to-face instructional time compared with like administrative duties, committees, research. Yeah. I mean, I mean like most of, most of my day is not actually preparing a lesson. Yeah. And most, most of my day is just being in front of a student because I have to, to monitor them in the hallway, do a yard duty. I have to attend an IEP meeting. I have to attend a staff meeting. I then plus in my box every day, I have three or four pages to fill out about some individual student because their parent is threatening to sue the school oh, or man. something. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, and, and that's where my time goes. And so it's like, when it, then I get my like 15 minutes of how to plan. And I'm like, hmm. What are you doing? 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm like, so I've been teaching this for eight years now, and it takes about five years, they say in the US, to actually get comfortable with what you're teaching. Yeah. I believe that. I believe that for sure. Um, kind of on that same note, speaking of parents, I have friends who are now, like we were talking about with, you know, families having like maybe two computers and the parents are suddenly working from home. The kids all have to do school from home. Just basically this sudden stress of everybody being at 
home. What recommendations do you have for parents in this situation? I mean, I'm not I'm not a parent, but I've just heard from this that this is a major stress that parents are dealing with right now. So what recommendations do you have for them for kind of balancing parents need with what the students need to learn without going crazy? <laughs> it's just like every you need to just treat this like you're working from home. Everything needs to be a schedule and routines. Students thrive on routines. Create a color-coded schedule where mom has the laptop from 9 to, to 11, then sister has it from 11 to 1, brother has it from 1 to 3. And yeah. just you need to create that routine, create that schedule, create that sense of normalcy that will alleviate anxiety. It also creates predictability and eliminates arguments. That's perfect. Yeah, routine. Yeah, yeah I know. I, I need that. And it's yeah. just me. <laughs> right? And, it's, and especially kids, it would really help to make a color-coded chart and like put it on the fridge good idea. so everyone can visually see it. That's good. This is what kid number one needs to accomplish today. This is what kid number two needs to accomplish today. This is what... And these are your hours to accomplish that. Yeah, yeah. This is what parent needs to accomplish today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Is there anything, that, anything else that you want to get out there um, to people about just from the teacher perspective of this, this really abrupt change that's kind of hitting the entire country all at once? I think that it's also pointing to a bigger sense of how important teachers are in America. I feel like over the last, oh geez, since probably the Bush administration, we've kind of had this sense of teachers are expendable. We should do, let parents choose everything. They don't know what they're doing. Everything from no child left behind to kind of now where you put a secretary of education who has, doesn't know what the hell she's doing. And the office, it kind of discredits teachers. And I think it's great because it's showing parents now, your, your child's teacher is actually a very important person in their life. Right. And you want to make sure that they are a credible, intelligent, hardworking, kind person who will be a big influence on their life. And they're, they're doing a job that no computer program can ever replace, no um, administrator can do, not even a job that you as a parent need to, yeah. to do. The whole point of education is to educate our community. And the, that is done through a community effort. Parents, teachers, and community members. If you drop any part of that, your student won't be educated. Right. Okay. One thing as a history teacher, I also wanted to get out there is we need to remember why we have public education in the first place. Pre-Civil War, if you lived in the North, you had an opportunity to go to school for maybe three to five years. You got to learn how to read and write and do math. If you lived in the South and you were anything but the upper 1%, you had zero education, which is why they say, make your mark when they want you to sign a paper, because the majority of the people in the South didn't know how to read or write. And during that Civil War period, those are also the same people who supported that 1% for slaves, because they were constantly told, well, I'm not rich now, but one day I will be rich. And it's the same thing that's happening today with some of our politicians. I'm rich, and someday you'll be rich too, but we're going to take away your education so you don't have that ability to think for yourself. Right. Yeah. Sorry for that little rant, but... No, it, it, it makes sense. And I, I think people are, you know, looking back at, at history a little bit more these days. I mean, I know, you know, with what's going, going on health-wise, I'm like, I never would have expected a pandemic, you know, in 2020. So I've been reading more about like, oh, the influenza outbreak and... Oh, yeah, like the Spanish flu 
1918 it's a time to like kind of look back you know past warns us about a number of things so we can't let our progress we've made slip away i thought after the 1918 pandemic we would have known better not to have them anymore <laughs> obviously that hasn't been the case yeah well or... the biggest problem is we put political leaders in charge across the world whose main goal is economic development and that's at the cost of everyone yeah a challenge today it's like every other day you know we're hearing you know okay well let's open you know should we open businesses again like you could just snap your fingers and suddenly all you know, everybody's going to go back to work or, you know, do we have to need to reevaluate the priorities balance? Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, staying home, I've been at home for two weeks and I'm getting pretty fidgety and, you know, I'm used to working from home and I'm still fidgety. I know. Just, just to imagine if you're a kid and you're used to seeing your friends. Oh, I know. These poor children. <laughs> yeah. They're and parents. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. But the only positive I am seeing is it's giving parents a chance to reconnect with their child. Because I feel like we've been so work-driven here in the U.S. and so like trying to get to to that next step. And all of a sudden, everything's on pause. So all you have left to do is enjoy your family, which I think is great. Yeah, yeah. Kind of set aside, you know, the terror. (laughs) I know in my case, like, okay, how am I going to pay the bills in a a few months? But, you know, right now, what else are we going to do? I've been taking walks in the park and I noticed a family has been out like playing softball or I don't know, wiffle ball or something together every afternoon. And it's really sweet because, you know, I never really saw that before, you know. I know. I mean, we see that all the time too. Like we see kids on their scooters and like, whoa, there's kids who live around here? <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Because they're always inside or always off to the next best thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, uh, Mark, do you have any other questions for Brian that you want to get out there? I did have one, Brian. I don't think we've touched on from your expectation, whatever it's safe, once again, whenever that is, to associate normally in person, do you think distance learning will remain as a greater proportion of your toolbox than it was before the COVID-19 pandemic? Honestly, I'll probably keep everything exactly the same way I always have, where I we go into school, I post stuff on, online, they do it in school, but with me there. Secretly, what I kind of hope is that we as schools realize that you don't have to do things the same way we've always done things in the past. And I'm hoping as, this, as schools, we start coming up with new ideas that become more approachable to, to students, even transition the entire school day. That's what I would love. Yeah, yeah. For example, instead of saying you have to go to period one now, period two now, maybe you do things like creative periods. And this is your, your, your time to go to a creative space and allows you to either work on your math homework, work on your science homework, or create, build, or take apart. Yeah, that, that would be just like a, a Mark, like we were talking to Glenn Mossy in an earlier episode about maker spaces. You know, just having basically like a little playground for taking stuff apart, building robots, building artwork, and yeah. So my my school is fairly progressive with that. We actually have a room that we call the tad lab okay and that basically what that is that's exactly what it is it's a room full of trash (laughs) and and there's a teacher who teaches engineering and it's like use this trash and make this Uh, like you have to make a roller coaster you have to make a bridge and figure it out go that is so cool i'm so happy to to know that that's actually like getting into schools at the middle school level 
It is, but as I said, it's a fairly progressive thing. Right. The other middle school in our district still teaches in a very old school kind of way, I want to say. Yeah. What's important is that type of activity is recognized as not wasted time. Exactly. And interestingly enough, some of the kids who thrive in the engineering class are some of the same students who do very poorly in their core academic subjects. Mm-hmm. Point noted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brian Cornell, thank you so much for joining us on creativecoast.org. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and hopefully this will all wind up pretty soon. And in any case, I hope you continue to make the most of it and and your students are making the most of it too. Yep. I'm a big believer of everything happens for a reason and I'm sure everything will be fine in the end. Great. As a a quote from a, a movie I saw, Everything is all right in the end. If it's not all right, then it's not the end. I like that. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Josh Workman, welcome to the creativecoast.org podcast. Hi, great to be here. It's great to have you here. And for those who don't know you, how would you describe the work you do? I'm a, a musician. I'm in L.A. Um, and also uh, a music educator. I work at Musicians Institute in Hollywood. It used to be Guitar Institute. And I teach, you know, a number of classes and private lessons and ensembles. So that's that's my day job. Well, how has the shift from at least partly in classroom to mostly online affected your teaching at Musicians Institute? Yeah, so it's, um, well, the good thing is I have been teaching online classes. We started a dedicated online program there this last quarter. And so I just got done with that quarter. So we've had to work. uh, One of the biggest challenges in the online thing for music is not being able to play together in time. You may see some people online who are, you know, they're doing, they're jamming together or something, but they are generally going to be slightly out of sync. Even if you don't notice it, there may be playing a little bit. One person's playing ahead of the beat in order to catch up with the other person. You know, so this is a challenge for me as a teacher, especially since I have students who are maybe on their cell phones, on Wi-Fi, where there's no chance you're going to be at all in sync. So I have to try and deliver the same experience that we'd have in the classroom. So I'm kind of making up for that with uh, maybe recording tracks ahead of time and, and sending it to them and say, hey, play along with this track and I'll, I'll critique it, you know, that kind of thing. That's sort of a unique challenge for music collaboration, it would seem, because other types of distance learning wouldn't be facing those types of problems. Right, right. Yeah. And some other things, just technical issues, because we're using Zoom, which is a great tool. And it's also, by default, set up for speech. So they've got it so it gets rid of the background noise. It sounds nice and clean until you play a guitar and hold a chord. And it suddenly, not only does it fade away really quickly, but it also starts to sound like you're in a sci-fi movie. You know, it's like metallic sounding and all that. So you've got a few different settings you have to make sure uh, you, but most importantly, your students are able to figure out how to turn those Uh, hit those buttons. And if you're on, say, a cell phone, those options aren't available to you. Yeah. In fact, this past week, I had to do my uh, finals and it was a real challenge with the Wi-Fi people uh, freezing up, you know, Uh, and then also, like I said, that kind of you can't even hear what they're playing. You just hear the attack and then the note suddenly dies away. And you're like, I think that was the right note. So... That is amazing, the difference of trying to do music over a system that is, like you mentioned, optimized for voice. 
and it does that kind of attack decay type stuff that's not made for music. Right. That would like be a tear your hair out situation, I would think. Well, yeah, you just quickly, you know, you st- then you get on, you start looking up uh, at all these forums. That's the great thing. So this is a positive. Since everybody's stuck at home, they have way too much time and there are all these forums coming up and it's their whole thing on Facebook for, for musicians who are teaching using Zoom and they're all throwing ideas out there and what they've discovered. I was just going to um, address the assessment aspect right. of teaching music online and these issues with, you know, some students being on cell phones and, you know, just how you're going to basically grade these students. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, again, the great thing is is I had some time, um, like I was one of the, the folks who developed the, the online program. You know, I'm not going to take not taking credit for it. You know, there are, of course, people really putting this together, but I'm one of the folks who uh, was the early testers and uh, kind of trying to break the system and figure things out. And so, yeah, we've we've definitely put together the ability to. Yeah, where am I going with this? <laughs> there's there's a. It's it's working out pretty well. That's all I can say. <laughs> I, I was going to try and get these these examples to you, and then I was going to see people's eyes start crossing. When okay, you know, maybe non musicians or whatever. Oh, you mean for us? Or 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 people who are listening, maybe. Uh, Oh. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's one of our challenges yeah. here is we take creative things. We're trying to translate them for people who might not be in that particular creative field. Right. So if we could make music understandable for someone who is not schooled in music, then that's an achievement that we're targeting for also. Right, right. I guess um, one of the biggest things that I what I'm doing is, is I'm kind of like uh, when I'm dealing with the, the students and I'm looking at the, the, the camera, I'm really trying to address each person like more than I would even in the classroom, because in the classroom, well, that's another thing in the classroom. I can stop everything and say, hey, Joe, come on up here. Let's let's try something together. Here's an example of, you know, because I'll I'll remember something just from my experience as a musician. So, for example, I teach technique. I teach sight reading. And in the technique. There might be a, a scale or a pattern that I say, oh, that sounds like this song. Uh, hey, come on up here. We'll jam on this. Well, not so easy on the fly when you can't play in sync. Could you explain jamming a little bit? Because I've seen people like I saw like a video of Bruce Springsteen, for example, say the audience said, hey, what song would you like us to play? And somebody now said this. And then he had his each team member riff on a piece of that sure. song. How do you do that? He was choosing what chord to do and speaking very technical musical things and picking up on the fly. So maybe you could educate us on that. Oh, okay. Well, I won't try. I won't spend too much time on that because that's a whole thing. The thing is, in general, you know, most musicians in a particular genre have spent decades or whatever listening to certain tunes. And even if they don't know the exact song, the ears can hear, like, for instance, like, have you ever heard somebody say, oh, that's just a one, four, five blues? Have you heard that term? Yes. So these are very familiar numbers for us. And the ears pick up on that very easily. So then also you would have, over the years, you would have, say, played arpeggios. What those, those are like where you, instead of strumming a chord, it's where you play the individual notes of a chord. And so if you've done this kind of work, you just naturally are able to play little melodies off of the chords. I'm following what you are saying. Okay. Certainly not nearly in the depth that you're saying. Right, right. I can follow the table of contents. <laughs> okay. So remember, I just gave you a technical thing. I said an arpeggio or a scale. Yes, and so yeah. the cla- one of the class or several classes are technique classes, and that involves those things. So it's helpful for the students to have real life examples like, 
for instance, oh, the song Hotel California, right? You know, there's that cool part where the two guitars go, oh, my singing's terrible, but they go, I recognize that part of the song. Yeah, boy, I'm not a singer. But but those are those are the students' eyes light up when I say, oh, here, you're going to play this arpeggio and you're going to play this arpeggio. And when you play them together, it sounds amazing. And they go, wow, I want to learn how to do more of this. So these are things I'm able to do on the fly in the classroom, but not so much via video because I can't say, hey, Joe and Tom, real generic terms, you know, you guys try that together. But what I can do is uh, what I'm doing is I'm creating uh, assignments for people to at the very least one person records a part and sends it to a partner that they've they team up and the other person overdubs a part. That, that you, then, of course, you have to have some basic idea of how to even overdub a part. And so then I give them explicit instructions on how to do that. So they're actually, they're not only via the online experience, they're not just learning about the subject, they're also getting better. They're being forced to learn how to record themselves. You know, I mean, we do, we do require that everybody at MI learn how to do that. But now maybe uh, in your first quarter, you're not required to do that. Now you are because you're having to do it online. So in a way, it's it's a blessing there. We talked with a musician in our earlier, Mm -hmm. our past episode, Scott Brookman, and he's recorded entire albums with an artist, Mm -hmm. Yanni Martinelli. And uh, they've recorded entire albums and they've never met face to face. They do it all online. I've done video game soundtracks where I've never met any of them in person except for the composer. and. Oh, so I'm sorry. I was, I was, uh, you were asking about the assessment process, like how do I grade people and all that. One thing I we are doing is a lot more actual weekly assignments. We're in class. It's more like we just talk about stuff and we try it out, and then we have every two weeks we have a quiz. So we still have the quizzes and with the midterms and finals, but we are requiring people to do weekly assignments just so we get an idea that they're absorbing it. Because in class, I would be able to tell, be able to say, "Hey, play me that." Then we also are having the discussion portion. I think that's kind of standard now. I think it's like kind of required for, uh, you know, to, to, to get your certificate or whatever. Somebody, I'll start a topic and then people will, of course, join in. So you have some sense of community and, you know, and people are shy. Some people don't want to talk on camera. So that, that gives them the opportunity to like just after the fact, go and type some stuff. So about how large are the, are the classes and does everybody come on to Zoom at the same time? When you talk about the chat, you're talking about like, the chat that's along the side of uh, the Zoom screen, or oh, okay, so so the, so actually, this would be a, a like kind of a written assignment for the week that they would do on their own. So oh, so what it is is that we have the LMS, uh, what do they call the learning learning management system management, yeah, yeah, and so that's where I'm uploading. Well, that's another challenge is of course I have to put this all together in this system that uh, before last quarter I wasn't familiar with and just spending a half hour figuring out how do I even upload this thing, you know? Oh, sorry. So it's like Blackboard or... Um... Some SCORM compliant thing or something like that. Yeah, you're probably more yeah. familiar with those systems than I was. Okay, you know? good. Yeah. So that's a challenge for uh, because now all of us teachers are having to do this. Again, luckily, I'm ahead of the curve. Uh, I It's me and another guy who have been doing this for a quarter. Plus, I help them get their um, other artists together on this uh, system for the past couple of years. So, so even just that little thing right there can, can you hang, can hang you up, you know, knowing how to put this together. And so, so that's what we're all scrambling to do right now. I'm pretty sleep deprived at the moment because I've been up doing this stuff and getting the syllabi together that are different from what we had in class. 
it, it seems like so. Uh, the Musicians Institute they provided you uh, with some time to prepare your class, right? Right. So yeah, you, you were you sent your email that you were going to start teaching it in about a week and a half. Right. So yes. Uh, so so what's happening is is I actually. Uh, last summer started preparing. Uh, well, that's the other thing is I've, I've shooting a lot of videos for this stuff uh, because the way we're doing it, instead of two hours a week in class or on the ca- on camera, we're going to have just one hour, and then uh, they have a bunch of videos that they watch for the first part. So that's essentially the lecture part is the videos, wow. um, the videos of you, right, of me explaining things and demonstrating a few things, and then. Uh, when we do the actual on-camera thing, then that's going to be people a- able to say, "Hey, I had a question about that scale or whatever." And, and you know, I, and of course, I, I move things along, but then I say, "Any questions about that?" So that that is one hour less that I have online. Whereas I used I was used to having two hours to kind of spread things out, and now I'm having to kind of do it all compressed into one hour, and I have to make sure that I move the topics along. It's almost like you have to compensate for the reduction in actual contact with the students, even though it's remote. Exactly. Yeah. And and um, I, I feel like uh, I'm I'm used to moving around a lot. I mean, I'm a real spaz in the classroom because I'm, I'm I'm used to being on stage and jumping around. And and so I'm that way in the classroom. And now I'm having to sit in front of this camera and I'm kind of bouncing all over the place. And I get excited about a topic and it's just like I'm a blur on the screen. <laughs> As long as you stay within range of the microphone, right. that would be okay. That's right. I have to make sure I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, I kind of lost track there. Please guide me. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Because we were, we were talking about, you know, how you, how you're preparing your class right. to, to make this transition to, to online. Right. Oh, okay. So, so what it is, is there's, um, we have several students who did the, the first quarter with me. And so they're used to the format. Starting next week, uh, or uh, uh, what? Yeah, a week and a half, or whatever. Uh, we're going to have a whole bunch of students who are not going to be used to that format, and the ones who are used to it have now been grouped with the ones who aren't used to it. So I, it'll be interesting to see how many people are kind of like exactly like when I first uh, showed up before we started recording. I was sitting there with the the mic muted, <laughs> just dumb stuff like that. Oh, and then I'm sure you guys have have heard about these. Uh, like now that everybody is on Zoom, you have to be careful with the security stuff. Yes. You know, <laughs> yes. Like people are, you know, yeah, I, don't, I won't even say what they're doing on on uh, on camera. And uh, <laughs> so I'm going to make sure to shut the door at five minutes after and requ- require people to. Well, there's the waiting room. That's the key. There's in Zoom, there's that waiting room feature so that nobody gets in until you see who's in there and then you let them in. So I'm going to definitely I'm going to have the peephole on the door like, oh, I don't recognize you. Uh, how many students are in the class? Because that sounds like that's going to be a big hassle. That's right. Yeah, you you asked that before. So now it's going to be the usual, say, 15 to 20 or so students in a class. So I'm going to have to keep track of my sheet here to make sure, oh, is this person actually in my class? And and then the other thing is making sure that you don't use your generic, uh, what do you call ID for the session itself. Every it has a, You want to have a unique number, session ID, or um, is that what I call it? It's more like the actual session itself is going to have, like you would send out a link that has a unique number just for that session. Probably session number is probably something like that. Anybody who uses Zoom will recognize what that what yeah, you're talking about. Right, right. And because a couple of teachers at school said they were doing a class and suddenly a private student just kind of popped up looking a little surprised that they're like, 
because they were maybe had the time wrong and they just hit the button or or you send them a link and they just try out the link to see if it works. And if you've given them your personal whatever it is room, essentially, it's like your your private room that people can walk into whenever they want. <laughs> so you want to make sure that you use that unique link for each class. And that's what I'm setting up now is every single session has its own auto generated link as opposed to, okay. oh, you walk into room 227 at 1 p.m. Yeah. You know, so you're like scheduling all of the sessions, basically. Everyone is it's, is a unique yeah. um, session with its own number so that if somebody accidentally clicks on it, they're not going to get in because nobody's in that particular session yet. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Lot to think about. Exactly. <laughs> That's an issue that people probably didn't encounter before with Zoom because the user base was so much smaller. Right. Now that, quote unquote, everybody is on Zoom, then you're going to have a higher probability of that happening of somebody stumbling in inadvertently. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's a way of managing it. Right. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. I hope Zoom can handle it. <laughs> I know. I've been thinking the same thing, you know, <laughs> boy. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm just using the I'm using the free version of Zoom and I've been scheduling meetings and stuff. And I'm like, I'm not even a teacher. I'm just a random person in the world. So <laughs> you said you had been uh, teaching before, right? Teaching. In yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to teach. Um, I used to teach college composition. Mm -hmm. um, oh, written. Comp oh, OK, yeah. Yes, yes. Writing. <laughs> yeah. My, my parents are both writers, actually. My, my dad uh, wrote for the Boston Globe and the SF Chronicle. Oh, yeah, sweet. for years. Yeah. And my mom, my mom wrote for Mother Jones and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. So you have writing and artistry throughout your family. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been writing for guitar magazines and stuff since 1999. I'm not an amazing writer. I've had uh, some amazing editors, <laughs> but I, I guess it's in the blood. You know, I, I got corrected enough when I was growing up on my grammar. So. On your website, uh, in your teaching uh, area, there are quite a few schools that you have listed there where you've taught privately for 30 years, plus guitar composition. Right. Wow. 30 years. <laughs> uh, that's what the website... And I'm only know, 25. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a very nicely done website, by the way. You know, I was going to say, actually, now that I have some time at home, that thing, I need to dust that thing off. It is so out of date because I've been doing everything on Facebook and not even my Facebook band page, which I've just been doing on my personal one. And, I, and it's just... I'm. You know, it's time to to make that accessible to to everyone because I I forget uh, I don't do everything public on my Facebook page. You know, so yeah, these are all these things that I have to uh, in the in the digital age. I'm so used to just being out there playing live and all that. I'm a little bit behind with the uh, with some of that stuff, and I need to catch up. Yeah, well, I think a lot of us are going to be trying to trying to catch up. Yeah, yeah, because that's our only means of communicating and and of course all my friends and and my li my little band uh, we don't have our little monday night gig anymore so we've been doing uh monday night sessions and i've told the guys like i'm going to be sitting there with a mask on really far away from you guys so they, i've got a black mask i'm gonna maybe i'm gonna get a cape and a, and a hat and a sword i'm gonna be like zorro or something i mean it's not here but um yeah so that's what i'll be doing uh monday night i'll be the guy with the mask, you know. <laughs> Are you going to be sitting like six feet away from each other? Or, or at least three or four. You know, we did, our, <laughs> we did, well, we did, we did a session together. Um, we're in the drummer studio and we're pretty close together. And I, after that, I was like, I don't think this is such a great idea. I love you guys, but I don't know where you've been this week, you know. 
No, that's fair. <laughs> and a lot of musicians, you know, I've seen them together and I'm like, well, do all these people live together? Are they all married? I don't think all those four guys are, you know, living in the same house. So we have to be careful. People kind of forget. They get into their creative space and like, oh, I'm having so much fun. And yeah, you're breathing on one another, you know. <laughs> so Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Since we uh, started off uh, with this particular episode as being sort of like many interviews, I, I had one other question I wanted mm-hmm. to, we wanted to throw in here. Whenever it's safe, once again, whatever that is, to associate yeah. normally in person, yeah. do you think distance learning will remain as greater as a greater proportion of your toolbox than it was before the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, I've, I've been thinking the same thing, and I, and I think I wouldn't be surprised if this becomes a big part of what we do, because there are certain things that you can save actual classroom space, because I mean, face it, face it um, you know, space is at a premium. Uh, especially in California here, it's, it's, you know, everything is real expensive. So if we can really make this shine, you know, we could have, have more students involved, um, you know, cause we, we run out of uh, space. Uh, so we could reserve some of those rooms for people actually playing together, you know, and do maybe some of the, these classes online where we still have to figure out that inability to play together all the time. But some of it, like, um, I have a, a reading class. It's a sight reading class. You know, that doesn't necessarily have to be in a classroom. Well, the possibilities of mm-hmm. change, the shift has already happened. Sure. Yeah. This has been a, a really illuminating conversation for me to hear hear about how, how a musician is putting together his online class. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Josh Workman, thank you so much for being on creativecoast.org. Been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I look forward to doing it again. So we've just heard from three educators who have had to adapt to using distance method technologies as a result of the social distancing requirements of the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we've really seen how educators have had to adapt on the fly due to this outbreak. And there's a lot of creativity involved in having to adjust your teaching in this way. So we hope that you've enjoyed this episode and we'll talk to you next time.